Welcome to the ITAM Reviews monthly radiocast with your host, Martin Thompson. Joining him on the sofa of software are regulars Barry, the Sam Mercenary Pilling, and the man known as the Sam Beast, David Foxen. Then on the couch of contention is Jeff, welcome to the Velodrome, Worsley, and he is joined with Rory, Process Guard, Canavan. And lastly, in the wing back of wickedness, is the soft, cuddly, and courteous Danny Beck. Moderating today for fairness and behavior is Libby, the item wench, Phillips. Please note all opinions are personal opinions and don't flag the item review or respective employees. Other opinions are available. Hello and a warm welcome to the item review radio show for March 2019. Uh, today's Tuesday, 19th of March. We've just returned from the item review team, just returned from the USA conference. Um, great to speak to some of the listeners in the US. It's quite unnerving when you speak to somebody in the US and you realize they're actually listening to the podcast. So, hello to all the people that we met in the US. And hello, team. So we have uh, Barry, uh, Rich, Rory, and David on the podcast this afternoon. Afternoon, gentlemen. Hello. Good afternoon. All. Hello, everyone. Afternoon. So we've got loads to get through today. Um, could we have a quick roundup of the USA conference? Barry, your first USA conference with us. Uh, what did you think? How did it go? I, I loved it. I really did enjoy it. I found... Um, in my experience, I mean, obviously that's the third conference I've done with you guys now, so I've done the UK, Australia and, and the US. Um, I found the guys who came to the US really engaging, uh, really enthusiastic and really prepared to sort of get involved. And, you know, obviously that's, that's quite good because one of the workshops I've been doing, as you know, is, is quite an interactive workshop. And they were really sort of going into it all in and, and debating points and getting involved with the conversation. Really good to see. Um, and then when we had the networking event on the first evening and, and then just generally chatting to delegates around the venues as well, uh, got some really fantastic feedback for the whole conference from all the people I spoke to. I mean, everyone, everyone really enjoyed it. Um, in most cases, I think certainly probably 80 or 90% of the people I spoke to, it was their first ITAM review conference as well. So the whole thing was new for them. Yeah, not um, newbies, not a newbies. But I, I think I mean, the, the, the general feeling I picked up on was that compared to some other conferences, the, the informality and the more community-spirited elements of it really did seem to fly well. And Rich, you don't strike me as an emotional guy, but you're positively gushing, um, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think I said like nine words or something, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, to be fair, it, was, it properly was the best one. Um, you know, I think... Each year, I mean, this was my sixth one now. Each year, they've been getting better. Um, but there was a real sense, I think, like, like Barry says, because there were so many new people, you know, you could, you could really feel that it was making a, a kind of immediate difference, you know, and people were kind of saying, you know, I know what I'm supposed to do for my job now, um, which is always a good start. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I properly enjoyed it. It was, um, it was a good few days, and I think, you know, I was uh, writing nice things about people on LinkedIn and everything. Um, uh, so, yeah, it was a, a really good one. Cool. Guys, and I, I have to say, though, before we go on, it definitely wasn't the, the best one. The best one was when, for some reason, we got the last flight out to New York before the biggest snowstorm in the world. And we ended up doing it from um, a hotel room with a few people. Do you remember casually walking down Fifth Avenue with no cars, just having snowball fights? Yeah, it's quite strange. That was mad. Like something out of a movie. Yeah, that was that was a once in a lifetime thing. You're never going to be able to do that again. 
And Rory, have you recovered? Are you back on Planet GMT yet? Planet Canavan, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, uh, what, what did I take away from America The or the conference was um, the, the prevalence of, shall we say, trying to align service management with SAM. That, that was, that, it seemed like there was a lot of people having another go at that again. And I had that conversation more than once. Um, and, uh, and also more than a couple of people telling me, I don't look at my photo on LinkedIn anymore. So, uh, you know, I, I, I you know, I was abusing just, you, you mean smiling on the outside, crying on the inside. So that's, that needs, that's something on my to-do list that I need to get sorted, obviously. Um, but yeah, no, very, very positive experience in Florida. It was, uh, um, um, it, it seemed like a refresh that I don't, I don't seem to recall bumping into people this time round that were there what sort of 18 18 months two years ago or whenever the last one was so um it it, it seemed it seemed fresh seemed and fresh. can you explain your your idea about you know taking new requests new projects and tagging them and stuff and how that works oh oh in a in a nutshell yeah so um there, there is this, um, how, how do we sort of drive ITIL and, or, or service management and soft asset management closer together? The idea would be, in theory, that projects and programs, when they, they stand up their, um, their requests for hardware and software, that they do it through a centralized uh, funnel of a request process that is the same for, uh, is the same one that end users would use, but obviously you can, you can, customize it based on views but the idea is that when when a project or program manager requests something um it's tagged against um an, a given it service so that's a potential drop down of, of a list of it services that the request goes against that then creates a tag um for the, well the, the request ticket will be created for for any sort of new uh, new requests but the um, the request itself becomes part of the Dash 2 tag that goes against the software. So that if you have a Dash 2 compliant SAM tool, um, very easily, or more easily, I should say, you'll be able to spot in the, in the, in the morass of data that comes into the SAM suite, those are the software installs that are aligned to Service X or Service Y or Service Z, whatever the service may be. So that's, that's the root of... Uh, uh, one of the questions that was actually asked at the Florida event. So how would you, uh, we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but how would you, you'd build your own tags and input the service uh, area or so what do you call it? A service stack um, into the ISO tag and then deploy it to the system. Is that how you do it? Yeah, that's, that would be the, the root of the idea. So that the request has a unique identifier, the request, says we're, we're installing this software and, and potentially hardware as well against a given service. And then the tags go on either the hardware and or the software then at that point and, and out they go then at that point they're deployed. So over time, of course, you can start to see as well, if things aren't being used, you, you're not sort of struggling to, to wonder, you know, do, who do we see about this? Um, what is that? What is the role of that software or hardware? Um, and it just makes life so much easier then at that point. But also it gives you the opportunity to start offering total cost of ownership as well. Because if you've got pricing data against software and hardware, you can, you can top that up 
from a from a services point of view rather than from a vendor point of view and even if your item maturity is shot or nowhere it's something that you can just get on with and it will slowly infiltrate your asset database won't it, with new stuff as the new stuff gets cleansed in Absolutely. I, heaven forbid anybody would think, right, we're going to implement this across our IT estate because the, the reverse engineering would just drive you mental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah. A gradual, it's a gradual thing that you would build up and do. But the nice thing is, once you get to that point where you've refreshed everything and you've, you've sort of worked your way through the IT estate and you believe you've got everything reasonably tagged or all your services are, are sort of tagged through the, the request process, you've got your CMDB. Yeah. Very cool. <clears throat> um, Rich, you, um, you pulled up a couple of stories around um, uh, companies that are so enormous, you really would have thought they'd have their act together in terms of AWS spend, but apparently not Netflix and others. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's two of them that are sort of both AWS related, um, but kind of slightly different angles on on spending more than you meant to in the cloud um so there's the there's one with lyft the sort of uber alternative um where basically they've committed to buy you know x amount of cloud from aws um which is a it's a 300 million dollar commitment between start of this year and the end of 2021 so, so three year. Um, so they have to spend the 300 million. So if it gets to the end of 2021 and they've not spent it, they, they still have to pay for it anyway. Um, so I imagine, you know, they've been given a, an excellent price you know, per unit on, on whatever it is that they're using. But if for some reason they, you know, scale down their AWS usage or, decide to switch some of it to Azure or Google or Oracle, um, that they've still got to pay to that money to, to Amazon unless they renegotiate that contract, which, you know, it, it's the first time that I'd really seen anything, you know, someone committing to such a massive number in the cloud like that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not the same as reserved instances and reserved capacity. It's, uh, you know, you know, it's kind of lawn shark style. You know, you've, you've got to pay us at the end of it, whatever happens. Um, which I guess shows that, you know, contract negotiation and all that is still super important in the cloud. I guess their business model is fairly predictable and robust, isn't it? In terms of, you know, we forecast needing this much cloud spend. So isn't that just, is that just astute purchasing? Well, I mean, maybe, I mean, they had one in place before that they set up last year that said they would commit to 150 million by June 2021. And now it's 300 million by December 2021. Which looks like someone either massively underestimated the first time or has been convinced to overestimate for some reason this time. Because, you know, doubling the amount just for an extra six month period is doesn't seem quite right does it yeah and it, you get that crushing feeling that even though aws and azure are elastic cloud and it's supposed to be ultimate flexibility it sounds like just the same old dinosaur <laughs> vendor that we used to of you know big commit means you may get massive discount but then you're locked in 
Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, if if Microsoft or Google or any of the other ones come up with some sort of innovative product that would be better for for Lyft, you know, it's, I, I imagine it's going to be difficult for them to to get out of this contract to go and use it. So they're kind of you know fully tied in for for nearly three years now. A similar, well, a messaging app called Snap, apparently in 2017, committed to $2 billion over five years on Google Cloud and $1 billion over five years on AWS, which equates to $600 million a year on cloud services. Yeah, which is, so that's Snapchat. Um, uh, it just says messaging app maker Snap, so it must be related to Snapchat, but that's, yeah. again, that's just huge numbers. I'm far too old to know what Snapchat is, but uh, I think I think Snap is the parent company for Snapchat, isn't it? Yeah, so because they, they do, they've got their own spectacles and whatnot as well, aren't they now? Um, but they, they've obviously gone for a hybrid and spent billions of dollars doing it. Jeez, it's cra- it's crazy money. Um, but yeah, I mean, isn't Snapchat is free app as well, isn't it? Well, there's lots of stuff in there. From from my uh, brief usage of it, um, there's lots of stuff in there. You can get things from like different magazines and newspapers, and, and you know you can get like the the independent roundup or what have you in there. So I imagine that's all paid for, at, um, you know, sponsorship and adverts and that kind of thing. So it's 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 possible that there's a picture of Rich with dog ears somewhere on the internet. Quite possibly. Um, let's hope, uh, let's hope OneDrive stays secure then. <laughs> Optimism, Rich, I like it. I just, I just wonder, guys, whether the lifting is driven by sort of, um, you know, uh, business requirements we're not aware of, like that they've got some plans, massive plans for expansion that would, would you know, mitigate the use of, of the, the extra IT that they seem to be buying. Yeah, but the point is, if that doesn't go through, that's a huge commitment. What happens if it doesn't work? Or they've got a blinding deal and actually they use more than the $300 million they're committing to. And yeah, like Martin said, it's great um, astute negotiations. It seems like they're rolling the dice a bit. It certainly seems that way, doesn't it? And and I guess if they've got, as Rory said, if they've got the expansion plans, then obviously only they will know. I mean, question, genuine question, because until I went to the States, I'd never heard of Lyft. Are they active over here at all? Don't think so. So, so maybe that's what they're looking at at the moment, is expanding their market. So, um, I mean, just from what I saw in the States, they are a bit more reasonably priced than Uber on average. Um, but obviously, you know, I wouldn't be up on these sort of things. Living in Norfolk, I don't really have Uber or Lyft, to be honest with you. <laughs> barely have actually kept actual taxis there let alone anything else so but i mean that's the only thing i could think of is maybe they're looking to launch into new markets and and really compete with uber because obviously uber are taking over the world in the in the minicab market so maybe lift have got plans to expand against that maybe yeah i mean it makes sense you have to hope that there's some logic behind this um Let's, let's be honest as well. It's, I mean, it's relatively easy, isn't it? I mean, the business model is perfect. You have one app for your customers, one app for your drivers, and all you do is just market and get drivers to sign up for it. Job done. Um, I mean, and that's how Uber's escalated so quickly into into such uh, an enormous business across the world. So I see no reason why any others couldn't actually follow the same same path and, and do exactly the same thing, especially if they're 
charging um, what on the face of it seems to be much more reasonable prices as well. True. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned Uber. So, so, cause this has all come out because Lyft are going for an IPO. Um, and I, I, from what I understand, Uber submitted all their documents and things at a similar time. So it, it's possible that we'll see something, the same sort of thing from Uber as well. Um, which would be interesting to see if you can, you know, can you divine anything about company success or, or plans from how much money they're throwing at Amazon? From a cloud management point of view, wouldn't it require a different kind of approach though? Instead of checking the bill every month and going, oh my God, how are we spending this much on AWS or Azure or Google? You're going, oh, hold on, we haven't actually made the most of it this year. We haven't committed to the 60 odd million dollars or whatever it is per year. We need to throw up some more cloud services to get the value out of it. Well, yeah, I suppose. I suppose that that depends. If you if you go on, if you do that too much, and you know, then you end up overusing. You'd have to you'd have to kind of monitor it quite closely, I think. Yeah. Um, and then you know what what's going to happen at the end of the, the contract? You know, if, if you're running at maximum, yeah. you can't get that deal again. But you're, you know, you've you've got two and a half years of using it behind you. Are you then just going to have to go in, you know, in, into an higher priced contract because it's going to be too difficult to, you know, to migrate back out of it or something? Um, you know, it could be it could be a, a long game for Amazon. Could you also share the the Netflix story, Rich? Yeah, yeah. So so this was quite interesting uh, in a couple of ways. This is one of the engineers from Netflix on Twitter talking about how basically he'd sort of messed up um, and overspent in the cloud. So it was interesting that Netflix are that transparent about it, um, which I think is good for everyone. Um, And this is basically an example of someone, you know, fully knows what they're doing, working for a company who fully know what they're doing, ending up, you know, not really knowing what they're doing. Um, So basically it's, uh, the, the bloke was messing around with some of the configurations for when they migrate things from one part to another and they have certain things that scale up, certain things that scale down and he um, he changed it so that in certain cases things didn't scale down immediately, they kind of stayed at their minimum capacity for long enough so that if anything went wrong they could roll back which you know makes sense and it seems to be down to um, just the, the order in which all these things happened. Uh, in the, I think he, he said that the only thing he hadn't tested for was an event where everything went perfectly. And we tested all these various um, bits where things might fail. And when everything went perfectly, they ended up running about 10,000 extra virtual machine instances um for 24 hours so ouch yeah and you know and he kind of said you know they spotted it but because there wasn't any risk they gave themselves a bit of time to, to roll it back but you know if you think you know 10,000 so 10,000 vms by 24 hours you know sort of um at what maybe if you've been on the charitable side five or six pounds an hour you know you're you're in for you know, many, many millions. Um, so, it, so it kind of goes back to that thing of, of what everyone was saying at the conference that you know, cost management 
hugely important, but equally, you know, who who can be ultimately in charge of it? Because you know, if ITAM people, if, if the developers can can make that mistake, you know, it'd be very difficult for for an ITAM manager to pick up on. Um, and then you get into the world of you know, tools and automation and things. But absolutely, I think it, it goes to show that cloud's great when it works, but very dangerous as well. Going back to the lift thing as well is when this is a when you when a vendor sells you a all you can eat agreement, it means you don't have the impetus to manage it as sharply as you should. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you can recognise that, Rory, from your university experience. You know, when they've got a campus agreement, they just burn through everything, mm. um, and and you know, there's no just it, it's not as it's spend management, but if you're not managing stuff that's being spun up in the cloud, there's a security concern as well there, isn't there? Or, or, you know, things are out of control, basically. You're not managing them. Well, to the, to the point where you, you almost dip into the Wild West as well. So this whole, this whole idea that you've got a contract and it covers everything, which is, you know, sort of mistake item 101. Um, but, but certainly in an academic environment, there was this case of, well, because it takes IT so long to roll out the software that we do actually want, it's going to be quicker, dirtier and easier to um to go to our own reseller to go to our own point of purchase just buy the software um and and we'll we'll crack on we'll we'll just install it ourselves so it and and then then you get sort of service management type saying well it's fine they're, they're, it's a self self-fulfilling need and um we'll just call it shadow it um you know it's it's everybody's easy to do that with services in the cloud as well you know, you can you can sign up for these things, and it's just a web a web front end, and away you go. And IT is none the wiser; the business is none the wiser too. So, um, it, it's vigilance. I think it's vigilance. It, you just need to stick at it and keep people educated. Other industry news since our last podcast is uh, the um, Oracle has got a class action going forward, and we were very pleased as the campaign clear licensing to put evidence forward for that. So there's evidence dropping for that about Oracle basically um, telling porkies to the U.S. stock exchange about their cloud growth, and they've been penalised for that. And I think Rimini Street have got a refund as well from their previous fine. They got some money back. Any views on this, guys? Is uh, Oracle on the ropes here? Uh, I, to be honest, I, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily call it Oracle on the ropes, and, and not get too excited because I mean, at any one time, Oracle are fighting at least half a dozen lawsuits anyway um because it's the nature of who they are i mean you know we've got the remedy street thing um and and i've got to be honest for one thing um i'm not sure it's it's as big a celebration as maybe uh people have have, uh, portrayed it in in certain news agencies because all that's happened is uh the supreme court have redefined the word costs in the context of the lawsuit and remedy street have basically got an award of 12.8 million dollars of the cost that they should have had to pay back um, they're still going to have to pay something like $70 million in damages for the breach of copyright in the first place to Oracle. So they're still the big losers in this in, in, the, long, in the long run of the grand scheme of things. You could argue that, that litigation is almost their marketing strategy, isn't it? There's so much going on all the time. They're seen as litigious. Absolutely. I mean, just, just the lawsuits I'm aware of, Oracle are, are suing the Department of Defense in the US because of the big cloud project that the latter is running at the moment, and Oracle felt unfairly excluded from the bidding process. Um, 
flipping that over, or it could also currently be chased at a moment by the US government for unfair practices in their labor and discrimination. Um, I saw something actually on the register yesterday. Um, they've now got, Oracle have now got a class action against them from thousands of former employees for mismanagement of the pension fund. You know, so it just, it just seems to be the nature of the beast. At almost any given day, you're going to read about a new lawsuit that either Oracle have launched or someone's launched against them. David, you mentioned um, harder as a service. Are you, it's, what do you mean by that? Leasing? Or are you seeing that as a trend? Or what, what's the, what's, tell us what oh. is there. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I think it's the future, right? So basically, a number of organizations recently, including Lenovo from a server as a server, server as a oh, can you edit this about server as a service? Easy for me to say. Um, and also the Microsoft managed desktop, um, the MMD service, which is coming out. Um, and Microsoft have also announced now that uh, they're doing HPs and Dells and stuff as long with the Surface Pros. So basically, it's a leasing model for the hardware. It's a leasing model for the software. You can refresh it every three years. I just think it's the future. Why would you still buy, you know, desktops and laptops and stuff that are going to be end of life in three years and too slow, not compatible with the latest and greatest software, and just end up writing it off as an asset? And I know um, when I tweeted this out a few weeks ago, I know that this is already happening. Um, it seems quite... Um, active in Scandinavia, for example, where, you know, a lot of companies are really taking this kind of managed desktop service up. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like cars. I mean, the car market's moving towards um, a PCP and, and, you know, a subscription model for those. So why would hardware not be the same? Uh, and I just kind of wanted to get the group's thoughts on that one as to, you know, whether you're going to see an uptake in this, whether you think it will last or whether you think people are just going to still buy the old, the old tin and keep it going and sweat the asset for as long as it stands up. I mean, so so I used to be a reseller. Um, I mean, I, so I left reseller world nearly four years ago, but this was around then. You know, HP were doing desktop as a service. I think uh, Lenovo were doing it, and it was you know loads of publicity around it. And then I guess the fact that we're still talking about it like it's new now means it didn't quite work. Um, so it's interesting because I think from a consumer perspective. You know, everyone's pretty much on, on that. Like, you know, you were saying about cars, most people you know, effectively rent their mobile phone and that kind of thing. Um, so it makes a lot of sense. But then, you know, when you get, you get on the train and the number of people that you see that are using IBM ThinkPads from like 1927, <laughs> uh, uh, the struggle that people are having with Windows 10 constantly updating. Um, I don't, I don't know if people are ready for, I think that the perception is, you know, that device, you just need that to do your job and until it sets on fire, you know, or melts or something, there's no need for a new one. Um, so I think the vendors will have to do a compelling job to show the value um, because it does seem to be people like to, you know, pay a thousand pounds for a laptop and then write it down over 12 years yeah from a user I can, I can see this being popular amongst employee bases oh yeah it'd be awesome as an employee yeah because everyone everyone's an employee is going to want a brand new laptop every year or two years aren't they the other thing i find most interesting about this so i mean obviously this sort of stuff has been going on across industries for years only in the real world it's called leasing um but because there's an it connection here all of a sudden it has to be something as a service 
That's, that's yeah, but I, I do. I, I mean, personally, I'm, I'm with, with Rich and David. I think it's a it's a good idea. Um, I think it can only be a a benefit because at the end of the day, apart from anything else, obviously recycling hardware and, and disposing of, of old hardware assets is uh, not an easy business to be in anyway. Particularly in the United States, where they have some quite strict conventions and laws around it as well. Yeah, right. And and you know, I think Rich mentioned that as a consumer, right. I'm currently on the lookout for um, a laptop for Sam Beast Consulting Limited. Um, and oh, hang on, Dave, I just caught that name you dropped there. <laughs> Very funny. Thanks. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thanks for the support. Um, but I'm trying to find a laptop at the moment. And, you know, I think I'd be much more, it wouldn't be such a pain in the butt process in looking for something. If it was like as a service model, I have no problem paying monthly for something that comes with Office 365 that comes with a, a good spec laptop that I can then give, a, you know, give back in two, three years. Um, yeah. To be honest, given my experiences last week, which um, uh, Rich and Martin had a jolly good laugh about on Tuesday, <laughs> um, when I almost had a meltdown, um, you know, I, my, my laptop failed um, last week, the day before I was due to deliver a training course in the United States. And actually, and as a service um, leasing um, sort of solution might have been ideal then because it might have been a case of right phone Microsoft oi, hard drives failed and then they call me a, a new one the next day so yeah totally totally get that I mean that sort of thing would work for me as well put all your files in one drive or your cloud storage of choice you know you, then you only need the, maybe a 256 solid state disk so it runs like a dream there's you know if you lose it there's nothing actually on the machine as it is apart from the software and obviously you've got a robust uh, lost or stolen um, software and hardware process within your organization jobs are good and right i mean yeah, these are the, the optimization opportunities and then you know the old kit can be sold on or given to charity or given to schools and everyone's a winner well that, that, that's the thing as well isn't it i mean because if you've got um companies running this system who are obviously asset specialists and computer specialists why not actually concentrate the responsibility of having to, to dispose of retired assets in their hands because after all they'll be the experts at it rather than you know, yeah, small businesses with it. And Barry, now that you've joined the the, the frequent flyer brigade, um, one one thing that could be quite handy as well is if you're if you're frequently travelling, you don't want to bring that hardware with you. You could conceivably you could start seeing boobs popping up in airports, and you just you just hire it for the for the period that you're away in another country. I, I think you're right. Although I must admit, I did mishear you at first when you said something about popping up in airports. Yeah, me too. I misheard that one and all. Is <laughs> <laughs> that Rory? Have you been stalking me? <laughs> I no one know really. I don't pop up in airports at all. No, so, I, I, think, um, I think that's a, I think that's a really excellent idea. And do you know what? And some, something I think a bit also be a really cool idea. And and I, I don't think I think the technology is there to make this work. But actually, with your uh, on your long haul flight where you've got a screen available why not actually build in some kind of capability where you can connect to a virtual desktop right from the across screen, just give you a keyboard and work on that. That's a, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Guys, maybe, the technical genius to monetize that. Guys, we need to, yeah, we need to stop recording this because I think we've just come across a billion dollar idea. <laughs> so if we can use the rest of this podcast now to work out how this is going to work. I think you have a, you have a keyboard that you can roll up and put in your pocket and the keyboard has a hologram that pops out and gives you a screen. That's the future. Uh, that's that would be well snazzy, wouldn't it? Yeah. Have you seen some of the phone makers now? I think Samsung's bring one out on these folding phones. Yeah. 
Yeah. It turns into a tablet. I, 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 I can't remember what it was called. There was a TV show um, on a couple of years ago, and I, and I watched uh, a few episodes of it before I just got bored of it, if I'm honest. But it was about um, a, a, a secret agent in the CIA who had uh, a chip embedded in his brain which allowed him to connect to the internet and communicate with anyone almost at will without using any hardware devices. That's the future. Uh, I mean, let's not put ITAM people out of a job yet, Barry. I mean, someone's got to manage the chips, mate. <laughs> somebody, Human somebody, asset management. Somebody's going to get their brain hacked. That's yeah, what's did, going to Did, he, did he have an agent installed on his brain to, to track inventory? That's what my question. And usage. <laughs> hey, but guys, if you want a if you want a billion dollar idea, right? Okay, instead of Interflora, into printer. So instead of sending lots of printed documents around the world, you can just get them printed locally. You just yeah. ring up, ring up, and you know. Well, you, you can you can do that anyway, can't you? I think Not with the um, HP Internet ePrint service, you can actually designate, find and designate a local printer to where you are, and actually do that now. Yeah, Rory, I think we'll park that one as Plan B. Okay, um, that's fine. We'll just <laughs> focus on Pretty Plan A. T-shirt sure and news agents near my house, and I was little at a printer that you could do that with. Yeah. Uh, you used to have big photocopiers, two p a sheet. And you could print stuff out like ten p a page. <laughs> so, so then was just been I was I was I was thinking more like you know if I wanted to get a, a you know a glossy A one PDF printed in New York and thirty copies of it. Well, yeah, but if you know, if you happen to be around where I used to live, you could get. That. <laughs> uh, you just need them to expand the business model and um, and a pocket full of ten p's, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, probably contactless now. To be fair. Um, but yeah, like, I, I, I'm with you, like that kind of thing where you could just go in with a USB stick or something and just get it all done. But I guess in America, because they've got Kinko's and those type of places, maybe you can do that there. You, you can, with, sta with staples. Right. Oh. So moving, moving swiftly on, <laughs> on to our next uh, section. Like, Jargon Buster. <laughs> Jargon Buster! What's the difference between a processor and a core? Anyone want to take that one on? Should, should, should I pick this one up? Because I was actually teaching this last week. Okay. So, because uh, obviously one of my sessions at the conference last week was about data center technology uh, and teaching delegates about the sort of uh, technologies they needed to understand for licensing purposes. And obviously processors and cores fall into exactly that category. Um, I think... The first thing, probably most important, is, is, is terminology um, because, particularly in the licensing world, there are so many different uses of the word processor. You know, some software vendors define a processor as a, as a CPU core. Some people, some uh, vendors describe it as, a, as an actual socket CPU. So let's, let's break it down. So firstly, what you're referring to as a processor, Mark, we're talking about a, a socket CPU, a socket central processing unit, socket processor, whatever you want to call it. Um, a lot of vendors call it a socket CPU, notably VMware and Red Hat, because it is the physical computer chip that actually plugs into a socket on the computer's motherboard. So, I mean, obviously, I don't know how many of our listeners have actually physically seen a, a, a CPU chip, but it's basically the small square of silicon that plugs into the into the mainboard. Um, and then, obviously, spider. in the in the old days, it would just be a single core processor and obviously as you wanted to increase capacity for processing you would just increase the number of, of socket cpus in the server um 
obviously the processor core uh, was gradually introduced over the last uh, 10 or 15 years or so. Um, and a processor core is effectively a CPU in and of itself, which is embedded within the socket CPU. So it's a processing unit within the CPU chip. Um, I mean, originally you got dual core processors, then it became quad core processors and then octo cores. Um, and now you've got processors with 20, 24 cores in them potentially. Um, and from a, from a purely logical IT perspective, everyone to an operating system would just be seen as a processor. So if you've got um, two processors, each with four cores, the operating system would just see that as eight processors because it sees it purely in a binary format, purely in a, in a, in a logical format as, as processors. So that, that's the main difference is that a CPU core is a processing unit within the socket chip, if you will. So and not one mention of cake. Well, no, I can do it with Easter eggs. Um, but I think, I think the other thing as well is, is throwing multi-threading and hyper-threading into the mix as well, because this is the other thing, is where you can then take, and Intel have done this obviously with great success over the last, last few years, is where you can actually take a, a CPU core and then split it into separate hardware threads. So again, the, the operating system would then see each one of those hardware threads as a, as a logical processor. So going back to the, the two sockets with four cores, if each core's got two hardware threads, the operating system then sees that as 16 logical processors. So... But haven't hardware manufacturers increased the capabilities of cores now, hence um, cores and processors, hence the change in uh, Microsoft licensing models, because people just having less processes and whacking on loads of cores. Absolutely, and that's, that's exactly why they changed their, their licensing, was to capture that, because what we used to have is, as I say, when you wanted to increase processing capacity, you'd just put more processors in the service. You would often have a four or eight processor server. Um, as cores have become much more prevalent, then the number of, of socket CPUs is reduced again. So most commonly in sort of the Wintel world, you'll have a two socket CPU server now, and, and both sockets will have uh, multitudes of uh, CPU cores embedded in them. So you can have like a 40 core server with only got two sockets in it, potentially. And that's, yeah, you've got it right, Dave, exactly. That's why, that's why they changed their, uh, changed their license model to cores. I mean, IBM and, and Oracle have been licensing cores for years anyway, but they both refer to CPU cores as processors. So if you've got a, a change submitted or, or one of the server teams has a change submitted to increase the number of cores or processors on a server, that's exactly why you need ITAM in that meeting to understand the licensing ramifications. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the things that... Um, you know, with any client I talk about with, with change management, um, I talk about sort of giving, giving your change management team a predefined list of change types that IT asset management should be interested in. And on top of that list is also always increasing CPU count or increasing in core count. Rich, how does this um, impact Microsoft licensing? You're doing training last week and letting people know about how all this works. What, what, what does processor and core mean in a Microsoft world? Um, so, I mean, it impacts a few different things. Uh, for, for Windows Server in particular, um, you know, there's a process when you move from process to core, so you have to, to map that out and perform an inventory and, and things. So, you know, that's important to make sure people do that before they renew. But one of the things that you're finding is organizations have got servers now that are packed full of cores for no actual reason. Because you know, people looked at it as they were getting one over on Microsoft. You know, you, you buy four processor licenses, and your processors have got two cores in them. 
But then all of a sudden, if you swap those out for 48 core processors, you've got all this extra power and you've not paid Microsoft any extra money for it. So jobs are good. But now you obviously have to pay for all those cores that you've got. So that there's, I, I'm recommending people, you know, if, if you can, ITAM, talk to your infrastructure teams and your architects and just say, you know, these servers that have got 128 cores in them that appear to be running solitaire, right, do, do we actually need them? Because if not, let's take them out, take the, the physical sockets out, and, um, and then you don't need to license them. Just licensing the number of cores you've got in your organization um, I think you will almost certainly end up spending more. So there's a definite um, sort of recalibration opportunity for, for, for what you've got out there in your servers. Um, and procurement as well, making sure they understand that, you know, if you tell them to buy a 24-core server and they can buy a 48-core server for £50 more from your reseller, you know, that seems like they've done a good thing, but they've actually doubled your software cost for for no reason um so it, it does mean people need to be more aware and um and i think itam managers need to understand like how barry was explaining it you know the difference between these things and make sure they don't get blinded with science when architects and things are, are describing a solution make sure you know what bits are what so you can license it appropriately rich should you also educate your procurement teams on the minimums as well with Windows Server and SQL, yeah, for example. I was just thinking that as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard. Um, it, it's getting harder and harder to buy servers that, that don't hit these minimums, but uh, but absolutely, um, you know, if they buy a server, <clears throat> that you know, if you've, if you've got to license 16 cores for a server anyway, you might as well make sure you're buying a, a server that, that's got 16 cores in it so you can use what you've paid for. I think it's also the case that you get, you get different reporting on processes and cores as well. What I've heard from from ITAM review readers is um, the operating system might not understand what it's actually got and might report back differently from what actually exists. Any any experiences with that? Um, I think it, it largely depends on what software you're using to do the reporting. Um, I mean, most discovery tools will actually pick that sort of data up directly from the operating system. And, and as I said, what the operating system will do is it will report all of your CPU cores and your CPU sockets and your hardware threads just as logical processors. So it doesn't distinguish between the two as a, as a general rule. Right. Okay, moving on to our final section. Job, Job of the week. week. Yeah, first off, does does anybody know anybody who's who's left the job? You know, that, that's left the vacancy? Because I think that would be a fascinating chat to have, you know, get their insight on on possibly why they left. What, the, one of these roles? Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah that would be good, yeah. S -s possibly um, litigious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for Job of the Week, we've actually got three roles that I, I popped up on my um, search. and. I've got IT asset manager at Gatwick Airport, and that, that popped up because I've just got back from Gatwick, having travelled back from our US conference, and I think that would be, I, I don't, I don't know, I get the impression that airport IT is prehistoric. That's the impression I get. Um, software asset manager at Lego, which is based out of Denmark. So, how cool would that be as a Lego enthusiast and um, 
uh, father of children that are slightly besotted with Lego. That would be super cool to do that one. And then software asset manager at Apple, which I think uh, last time I looked, Apple was the most profitable company on the planet, perhaps, something like that. Highest value, no, highest, um, highest valuation, perhaps. Uh, what do we think of these roles? I think, I think the, the Sam job at Apple would be death by a thousand cuts um, as much because um, we don't want to get in the way of the creatives. That, that whole idea that uh, we will put some uh, sort of rules and regulations in place, we'll put some structure in there. And yes, we will up to the point where we've, you know, we, we've got everybody running around with corporate credit cards buying whatever they like because um, they're all developers. Um, I, I, I wouldn't fancy it, to be honest. We had a similar story. Do you remember with um, uh, Google won the Excellence Awards and they, their challenge was not the big vendors, Oracle, Microsoft, SAP, etc. although I'm sure those are a challenge, but the bigger challenge was their long tail for exactly that reason because um, you know everyone's an engineer at Google and they have a credit card and we don't want to stop their creativity so they can buy anything. Mm. And um, you know, you know they're, they're precious snowflakes that mustn't be told what to do. Um, <laughs> Sorry, did I say that out loud? Sorry. Um, and yeah, I, th I think there'd be a similar challenge at Apple or any other big brand like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think, I think the only saving grace in a job like that would be um, because you work for Apple. I, want, I was thinking about this when I saw the jobs earlier. I never hear stories about Microsoft auditing Apple or IBM auditing Oracle or Oracle auditing SAP. There's, there's never that sort of... I'd love to see those kind of stories, but I, I never see them. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, so what are you thinking that you'd be pretty much protected from having to go through all that because they just don't audit each other? I, I think so, yeah. I think there's, a, there's an unwritten rule where they, they don't go near each other because it could, it could just like turn into a Godzilla movie almost. You know? it's just, <laughs> yeah, just monsters eating each other. Um, so you, you might you might sort of escape that sort of you know dreaded audit experience. I think as well, just just casting my eye over the job description for Apple, it does appear to me almost like it's gonna be they're just dropping someone into the role and just gonna let them go on with it. You know, I mean they're looking for someone that's sort of highly self-motivated, self-starter, visionary person, minimum of seven years' experience. And all, and all of those sort of suggest to me that we're just gonna let you get on with it. Whether that's a good thing or, or a bad thing, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Because I've, I've worked in environments where there's been no previous software asset management and they just drop you in and say, right, fix it for us. Uh, and that can be quite rewarding if things go in your favour and the stakeholders are paying attention. Uh, conversely, it can be a real grind as well if things aren't going for you. I think if you know what you're doing, those ones are the best ones, right? If, you, if they haven't had previous SAM or ITAM experience before, they don't have the skills, which is why you're effectively there. Having that free reign uh, can yeah, yeah. be an awesome bonus. But I, I agree to an extent, provided the stakeholders are on board. The stakeholders yeah. are probably supporting your way because if you get dropped in like that and all of a sudden, you know, if it's an organisation that's going, right, we need to do SAM, we don't know why, but we need to do it, um, you know, then, then you're, you're up against the wall because, yeah, it's great having that free reign, but at the same time, the stakeholders don't really understand what you're supposed to be doing. So you're almost finding like you've got to win the business case that on paper they've already won because they put you in the role in the first place. Yeah, and there may be internal politics over who does what Absolutely, and they take yeah. stuff away from you because you've done yeah. it too well. Yep. 
So my, my advice would be anyone applying for that would be tread carefully. I think the um, the Gatwick one looks quite good. Um, it's interesting to see that Gatwick is 1,000 to 5,000 employees. Um, so if you're in a larger organisation, potentially you might find this one, you know, quite easy to tackle. But like you said, the kit's probably prehistoric. It, it also looks like they, uh, they've overlapped this with a procurement role as well. Yeah, they want you to do the end-to-end lifecycle yeah. management, including the purchasing. And, you know, it says even in the desirables about having SAP experience yeah. or similar finance tool. I mean, I, one, of, I one of the top I, 10 skills that's mentioned for the job role is purchase orders. I don't, I'm not saying Gatwick's ancient. I just think that whenever you see anything at an airport that's public facing, it's usually looked pretty ancient, doesn't it? Yeah, and there's still quite a lot of uh, Windows XP whenever you go through security and that. Um, which you know, makes you wonder. Yeah, when the monitors go that are announcing adverts or uh, you know arrivals or destinations, it always seems to be like a like a ninety eight or a Windows two thousand or something, doesn't it? That's crazy. Yeah. I think the pressure there as well. Then going on that, if you don't renew a license or a certificate or whatever, and people can't get through security or can't check their bags in, we've seen that in the news the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, just imagine the uh, chaos that would ensue. And what about software asset manager at Lego? That's got to be cool, doesn't it? Awesome. <laughs> Lego would be cool, wouldn't it, surely? I think that's the top job this week. I really do, yeah. That, that, I'd, I'd, be, I'd love to know, kind of like with Disney as well, I'd love to know what their kind of challenges are in terms of, you know, it might be like um, Google where the, the major vendors aren't their problem areas. It's the long tail stuff. Because they've probably also got a lot of um, creatives, Martin, to be fair. There was an interesting comment. I, I won't mention who it was because it wasn't a public comment, but the, the guy stood up from a particular university in the USA and he's, it was about their company culture. And, he, you know, the, the, average, the average ITAM function should be a mixture of carrot and stick. And because of their culture, they weren't allowed to use a stick you know, and I'm, I'm, again, going back to your experience with universities, Rory, you know how you know, you're not allowed to upset the professors or the departments. They are sacred. He could only use carrot. And his comment was that he, he presented carrot to his users, but all they wanted was cake. You know, <laughs> a, a lot of these brands, they're so, um, I don't know, you get, get away with whatever you want if you're a user because we have to look after you, basically. Yeah, yeah. That the, the the abiding thing that stuck in my head with that was uh, a particular lecture at one of the universities I was at. Um, day one of Apple announcing the latest, you know, memory upgrade on their phones, he just went in and said, "Right, I want that. That's what I want. And why do you need it? I just need it." You know, there's no justification for the extra space. So he just wanted a new phone. That was it. And he'd seen an advert for it, and that was it. And regrettably, he got it. So, uh, I, saw, I saw I saw one instance not that long ago. So I, I've done some work with educational institutions as well, um, and there was one about a visiting professor who was coming in to actually do a piece of work with his own laptop. I should add, he was being being paid to come in and lead a particular piece of work, and then he insisted the the university concerned bought him some software. And it's like, hang on a minute, that's that's your device. We're paying you to come and do this. So uh, no. But uh, he tried it on, and he expected to get that piece of software to do the job. Yeah. But with the Lego one, though, Denmark, awesome place to live. 
really reputable brand if you can make waves in there and you know implement item and sam and, and be a hero you know that'd be a great case study or future speaking slot at one of the item review events yeah they might even if you do a cracking job david they might make a legacy <laughs> figure in your <laughs> yes yeah, I, I highly doubt i'd be able to convince like ginger the, uh, ginger haired like little lego man with well, item at item on his shirt Aren't, aren't most Lego people yellow in colour? The actual, the actual figures. They are. I, I believe. I'm just, just wondering how ginger hair would work with. Whoa, that. guys! <laughs> less, less of the gingerishness here. Just because it's, it's, it's a not gingerism. I'm stating the fact, Dave. Just because it's a rare colour and you all wish you had ginger hair doesn't mean that you can uh, be mean about it. But, but yeah, uh, I personally. Do you know what? It's actually a genetic mutation. It's a genetic awesomeness, is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, on, on that bombshell, um, before we upset too many people, um, thank you guys very much for joining the radio show. We'll see you again in April. Uh, and if anyone wants to join as a guest or has any industry news they want to share, please uh, email me at martin at itemview.com. Thank you, guys. Gingers have souls. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-